turn to the hymn number 20 today. Abba, Father, we approach Thee in our Savior's precious name. We, Thy children, here assembling, now the promised blessing claim. Number 20, we're going to stand as we sing unto the Lord. Let's stand.
seated. I just noticed Mr. Doderno in our midst. Would you come and lead us in prayer and open in prayer this morning? Beulah and I are delighted to be back with you this morning. And this is one of the best reasons I can imagine for your pastor to be gone, as this weekend he has gone to two ordinations. That doesn't happen very often in our denomination. So we have many reasons to be encouraged, and we're thankful uh, for the reason that he's gone, when I'm happy to help when I can. So, brother, come and uh, lead us in prayer, and may the Lord guide. And does he need this microphone? You do. Just for the sermon audio, I presume. Well, let us unite our heads in prayer for this morning's worship service. Let us bow our heads. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank Thee once again that we can come to Thy throne of grace for the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ the righteous. Lord, we think of that Old Testament message, the Lord our righteousness. And Lord, we are pleased to gather in here to praise Thy name. And Lord, we Look to Thee this morning, for, Lord, we know the shortcomings of man. Lord, for Thou didst say that without me ye can do nothing at all. So, Lord, we ask of Thee that Thou would come into our midst this morning in this meeting place. And, Lord, that Thou would meet with each and one of us. And, Lord, that Thou would truly give us a word in season. And, Lord, we pray most of all that Thou would meet with the speaker here this morning. Lord, fill him with the Holy Ghost. And, Lord, we pray that it would truly be a word from Thee. And Lord, how we need, uh, Lord, how we need to be fed this morning. And Lord, we do pray once again, we pray for the other church services going on. We think of the ordination service. Lord, we are thankful that a church has been filled. And Lord, we pray that that would be with them as they do go forward with the installation of our brother elder. And Lord, we think of the Mexican work. And Lord, we think of Ramon Sosa at this time as well. And Lord, we think that these are great things. And Lord, we ask Thee once again that Thou would continue, uh, continue, Lord, to give us men uh, even to preach the gospel. Lord, we pray and we thank Thee one more time, Lord. We think of those who are sick. We think of uh, Reggie Cranston at this time. We remember him. And Lord, we pray that Thou would meet with him uh, even in a special way. And Lord, we ask of Thee that, Lord, that Thou would continue to bring souls under the sound of the gospel. Lord, we pray that Thou would fill every empty seat here. And Lord, that they would come, and not under uh, some gimmick of this world, but Lord, that they would come with that true sense of need, the sense of need that their soul needs to be saved. And Lord, we look to Thee at this time, that Thou would continue to meet with sinners. And Lord, we look to Thy blood that was shed on Calvary. And Lord, that may the cross be seen here this morning. May there be a fresh vision of the Savior. And Lord, we pray that we look to Thee at this time to do the unexpected here this morning. And meet with each and every one. And Lord, may it be a special blessing this morning. For Lord, we do ask and know once again that the arm, is, the arm of man is very short. But Lord, we know as Isaiah did say that God's arm is not short, that it cannot save. So Lord, we look to Thee at this time to do that marvelous work of redemption to save the lost. 
And Lord, we pray that Thou would meet with us here, that we may worship Thee in spirit and in truth. Open up Thy Word, Lord, that we may receive it. Write it upon our hearts. And once again, be with the speaker. We ask of all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Our next hymn is 392, The Solid Rock, 392. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Let's stand to sing. seated. Our Bible reading today is going to be in the book of Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. As we look that up, I want to express sympathy to our sister Rhea at the recent sad loss that she has endured and all that that brings, traveling and visiting family in the midst of their sorrow and ministering to them. And I trust the Lord today will comfort your heart, even here, as we read and as our message today will be on the book of Job. Let's begin then our reading at verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was seven thousand sheep and three thousand camels. 
and five hundred yoke of oxen, and five hundred she-asses, and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons went and feasted in their houses every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God? and eschewed evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made an hedge about him and about his house, and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, the oxen were plowing, and the asses feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven, and hath burned up the sheep and the servants, and consumed them and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young men, and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped, and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, 
and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Amen. May the Lord write this upon your heart today and minister to you greatly. Well, to extend a welcome and to give the announcements, I'm going to call upon an elder, and Mr. Fraser's on his way. So, Mr. Fraser. <clears throat> we welcome you to our service this morning, and we pray for the Lord's blessing upon each of you as we meet together in his house. We welcome those who are viewing online, and we hope that you too will receive a blessing from the ministry of God's Word. And we welcome our visiting preacher, Reverend Ian Gallagher, and we thank Ian for his willingness and his faithfulness in coming to preach the Word to us this morning. And then we're having our brother Frank uh, DiDerno this evening. And we pray that the Lord will bless Frank as he ministers the word to us this evening. There is a time of prayer at 6 p.m. prior to the evening service, and then the service will be at 6.30. The prayer meeting on Wednesday at 7.30, and next Lord's Day we have the services at 11 and 6.30 with our Bible school at 10 a.m. There's the upcoming week of prayer. And as you know, the week of prayer is Monday to Friday, every evening, on January 23 to 27. Put it in your calendars, and we look forward to that week of prayer. Pray for our pastor as he's traveling right now at the ordination services, both in Orlando and the Dominican Republic. And it's a very exciting time for both of those congregations as they have the uh, ministers ordained um, to the gospel ministry. I received a thank you note from our sister Rhea and Maher uh, in the passing to thank the congregation in the passing of Rhea's mother. To the Toronto congregation, we want to thank most sincerely, thank you most sincerely for the many messages, phone calls, texts, and cards after the passing away of my dear mom. Your kind words of sympathy and comfort meant so much to us, and we thank the Lord for each one of you. With our love, Maher and Rhea Lewis and family. Psalm 48, verse 14. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. May God comfort Rhea and Maher at this time. And I will now hand the service back to Reverend Gallagher. May I remove this uh, obstacle in my face here? All right. We're going to sing together hymn number 491, Does Jesus Care? Does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth or song as the burdens press and the cares distress and the days grow weary and 
long. Shall we sing verses 1 and 2? Just 1 and 2 of this hymn as we stand to sing. 491. Shall we remain standing and we'll ask the Lord to draw near and to minister to our hearts this morning through His Word. Our gracious God, we thank Thee for the many in this meeting today that have absolutely no doubt that the Lord cares for us. We thank Thee that each and every day that we are in Thy care, kept unpreserved until that day of glory. And we praise Thee for Thy saving and keeping power. But, O oh Lord, we live in a troubled world in troubled times. And to many of us, trouble has come very near. And like those disciples in the boat in the midst of the storm, fear can overtake us. We pray today that the gracious ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, will drive away those natural fears, those fears of doubt, and fill us with a blessedness, that unspeakable blessedness, that inexplicable blessedness, even in trouble. And we pray that Thou wilt let us see the Lord Jesus as we think of how He suffered, how He endured, and how He was greatly exalted and today sits at Thy right hand. And so minister to us. Give help in the pulpit. I need Thee here, Lord, every minute. Give help in the pew even to the littlest child in the midst. May there be a word for each soul. Bless those who join us online. 
May there be a true and a wonderful personal ministry of the Spirit of God to each heart. In our Savior's name we ask. Amen. Amen. We're back in Job chapter 1, and the men in the recording room asked me what was my text, and I struggled. And I came up with the words of Job, doth, of, of Satan, doth Job serve God for naught? And that's in Job 1 and verse 9. Now, I say I struggled because today I want to simply tell you the whole story of Job. But firstly, let me ask you, who here this week from last Monday morning until today has had the patience of Job? I think I will allow the wives to answer that one. I think they would be the best to give an honest answer. It's a very common statement. That man, that woman has the patience of Job. It demonstrates a lot about character. It demonstrates a lot about a person's willingness to put up with that we might minister even to others. This story of Job is a fearful story, because what if it happens to us? If it can happen to the very best of men, it could happen to you and me. We wouldn't rank with Job at all. And if he suffered so terribly for such a long, enduring struggle, it could happen to me. But it's also a very helpful story. It applies to the businessman. It applies to the patient in hospital that is struggling with sickness. It applies to the bereaved. And it applies to the bankrupt. And so there's a great scope of application in this story of Job. But I have to also announce that Job as far as the Bible states, never found the answer, never got a reason for why all of this came upon him. And so it's a very surprising story. But to us, it's a most encouraging story because we get to read the end of the book. And to Job, everything is doubled up. It's a demanding story for readers because it's one story and 42 chapters. I challenge you to sit down and read the whole book of Job in one sitting. And it's therefore a very challenging book to preachers because in reality we can't just take one text and give the bird's eye view, the big picture of what's happening in the life of Job. And so here we go today to simply tell the story. But it's the story about a man's testimony. And that's where it applies to you and me. Because you ought to be very careful about your testimony. 
what your profession is, and what the reality is in your life according to your statements as a Christian. Now, it's the story of a man who was very careful about his testimony. We come to this term where it was said of him that he eschewed evil. Eschewed evil. That means that he resisted it. That means that he fought back against evil and sin. We are introduced to this unbelievably good man, and you would think he would have no struggles, no sin problems. Well, he was a realist. He was living in a real world, a fallen world, a world, as we learn here, where Satan is busy and where he struggled, he fought and resisted against sin. He lived a life of repentance, always seeking to be more and more free from and living more and more in the victory of the power and the grace of God. And you so live in this world today. If you're like Job, sin vexes you. Sin brings no pleasure to you, whether you see it in others, and of course you tremble lest it would come into your own life or to the life of your children. And we learn in chapter 1 about Job offering sacrifices daily for each and every one of his children, one sacrifice for each son and each daughter. And Job feared, especially in their happy times of feasting, that they would curse God or sin against God. And so daily he offered sacrifices to God. You can see then how careful this man was about guarding his own testimony, keeping sin far away, and applying the gospel remedy to sin and all its problems. That's what we must be doing to be like Job. We need to resist the devil. We need to flee from temptation. We need to run to the cross every day. We need to plead the power and the victory of Calvary every day for our own lives and for those that we love and care for and for the cause of the Lord Jesus. Now, some people struggle with the idea that as a Christian, we should live in fear. Well, it's right to fear sin. And a right fear of God brings a right fear of sin into your life. And such objectors who say, well, we shouldn't be living in fear, we shouldn't be always worried about reverence, such neither know the nature of God nor the true nature of sin. The more that we get close to God and know Him, the more we live in His fear and the more we live in the fear of sin. As we move on in the story of Job, we come to the testimony of a man who was in danger 
of losing his testimony. We learn in this book of Job, the first chapter, that Satan is out to destroy the godly. Look at verse 7. The Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? That's like what you would have said to someone today. What have you been doing all week? Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and walking up and down in it. And there he is there, as Peter would have said, as a lion, the roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And in this relentless work of Satan and in the mighty controlling power of God, Job gets sandwiched into this crucible of becoming now an experiment. God holds out Job, hast thou considered my servant Job, that there's none like him? He's upright, he's godly, he even uses the word perfect, or at least that's how it's translated in our Bible. It means that he is without any obvious sin or problem in his life. As far as anyone can see, he's a blameless man. And God says, Hast thou considered my servant Job? And now Satan's work begins. There's a reason for Ephesians 6 in the Bible of the Christian armor, that we are to withstand the wiles of the devil by putting on the gospel armor. We're living in a world where Satan is very busy, and he seeks to destroy. And every child of God needs God's protection. Because in this world, we are walking in enchanted ground. You are treading on the enemy's territory. The God of this world claims everything that you go to do and touch. And remember something. Your testimony is the most valuable thing that you possess. It's worth more than your car. It's worth more than your house. It's worth more than your health. It's even worth more than wealth and life itself. When we learn about the martyrs for Christ, they were seeking to maintain their testimony, choosing death, that they might be faithful unto God. Poor Job, without knowing the issues of this contest between God and Satan, and that's the problem. He was in the dark. He didn't hear this conversation between God and, and Satan. He wasn't up there when the sons of God or, or these wicked devils came to interview with God. Job was down on the earth, busy, and then suddenly, of, as if out of nowhere, all the powers of the devil were let loose against him. So much so that 
There were four waves of calamity all in one day. All in one day. A messenger one after another after another telling Job, camels are gone. The oxen's gone. The sheep are gone. Your servants are gone. Your sons and daughters are gone. And so this could not be interpreted as somebody being in the wrong place at the wrong time and just happened to have a bad day. This was calamity, and God allowed it to happen. These were extraordinary sufferings, and they had to be, because if they were ordinary sufferings, it would be no experiment. It would be no demonstration of anything. And so it had to be something extraordinarily calamitous to really show that Job was a man who loved God for the right reasons. And that's what this is all about. Loving God for all the right reasons. John the Apostle was on the Isle of Patmos in exile for Christ's sake. And the Bible tells us in Revelation 1 that he was there for the Word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Your testimony needs to be preserved at all costs. And it may cost you friends, money, it may cost you ease and comforts in this life. It may even cost you physical suffering. And for some around this world, they face imminent death if they will not deny the name of the Lord Jesus. Is this strange? Is this something that this is medievalism. This is something out of a dark world that's not reality. Well, let's go to the New Testament here, to 1 Peter chapter 4 and to verse 12. <clears throat> 1 Peter chapter 4 and the verse 12. And I want to, I want to read what, what Peter said to new Christians. If you know the book of Peter, it was to young believers, and he said to them, Beloved, these are Christians now, beloved, and Peter loved them. The Lord loved them, and Peter loved them. Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. And Peter didn't give them an opt-out clause. He didn't say, well, if you live in a certain way, you will avoid trouble. But he said, this is going to come, the fiery trial which is to try you, but don't count it as some strange thing that happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. 
for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. And so there's a real devil, a real spiritual warfare. There's a need for putting on the Christian armor in this world to fight against the wiles of the devil, his darts and his oppositions. And this is our responsibility. You're to own this. You're to realize that that's part of being a Christian. You can't be a Christian and ask to opt out. You can't be a man or woman with your name written in the Lamb's book of life, having the assurance of heaven, of professing to love the Son of God, and say, but I didn't sign up for the suffering part. And Job discovered that too, even with such a testimony as he had from God. A man who was upright, eschewed evil, was perfect, and even lived in the power of the blood of Christ. That's what those sacrifices point to, the sacrifice of Calvary. So if you're a Calvary Christian living in the daily light of the finished work of the cross and the power of His blood to give you the victory in this world, you still can't opt out of the struggle. Now, that brings us to the story now of a man fighting for his testimony. He is in this battle now. And in chapter 2 and verse 3, you will see that in the midst of all this, he maintained his integrity, his innocence. Let's read verses 1 to 3. And again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, and that feareth God, and escheweth evil, and still he holdeth fast his integrity. You remember how he would not curse God. He said, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And he maintained his integrity, his innocence. But you notice what the devil was trying to do in verse 3, at the end of verse 3, to destroy him without a cause. That's the hard bit. Because the moment that calamity comes, the question is why? But there's no cause. There's no logic to this. 
You can't lay it out and say X equals Y and you get this result. We're all bamboozled. Why? And there's no answer because there is no cause. There's nothing in Job that the devil can lay hold of, but he's out to destroy him. And then Satan was permitted to take away his health. Remember his argument, well, he'll, Job will uh, love God not only for possessions, but for good health. And then he was permitted to take away that, and he ended up sitting in the ash heap, scraping his boils in dreadful pain. Those boils, some think, is a form of, of leprosy. And he was a terrible sight, a terrible sight. And when you get to chapter 3, you can see how this calamity seeped into the depths and the recesses of his life. Depression, darkness, not knowing anything. How could this happen to a good man? In chapter 211, you'll notice that his three friends come along, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They made an appointment together. That means they arranged to meet up, and all three of them would go and minister to Job. We're told in verse 11 uh, that they came to mourn and to comfort him. That's good, isn't it? That's really nice, to comfort him. And the word comfort means to sigh. Have you been there where words fail you? And all you can do is sigh. I know of a minister, a young pastor who was called into a home of bereavement. Sudden death came to the family, and on the way he had thought on how he would talk to the family and try and comfort them with some words that may help. When he got there, he couldn't speak. He just sat down and cried. And later he left without saying a word. You know, that was the best pastoral ministry that he could extend. Just to weep where others are weeping. And I think that these three friends did that for a considerable time. They just sat with Job in silence for a long while. And they sighed together. And then, of course, the silence was broken. Now, these three friends, Eliphaz, his name means, my God is gold. Eliphaz, Faz is gold. We'll call him the golden boy. And you'll find that in his words to Job, he was always talking about purity. 
You know, this, what Peter talked about, coming through the fire as pure as gold. Well, Eliphaz was ministering to Job all the time about purity and being clean. And these words come up again and again in his speech. Now, of course, this was a dreadful sound in Job's ears because in it was the accusation that Job was not clean and it was due to some sin and some hidden secret thing in his life for this that calamity had come upon him. And of course, all of this was applied to Job. Bildad, we're going to call him the prosperity guy. Bildad. When you read what he said to Job, he was always talking about prosperity. That God makes the good to prosper. It's the wicked that fall into calamity. And he preached the prosperity gospel to Job. If you look at chapter 8 and verse 7, you will see a little sample of this. Um, well, verse 6 and 7, if thou wert pure and upright, oh, notice the dagger there, if, oh, Job, if you were the true man that you say you are, you were pure and upright, surely now God would awake for thee and make the habitation of thy righteousness prosperous. So here's the prosperity guy. And he's saying that if you're walking with God and living for God, all will be prosperous. All will be well at all times, even here on earth. Now, so far, the third friend, I'm going to call him the go-so-far guy. Zophar, go-so-far. And if you look at chapter 11, verse 7, you'll see his words, Can't thou by searching find out God? These men who came to comfort Job, and there was no reason for his suffering, and they wanted to find a reason. They thought the only way to get to the bottom of the issue is we must get a reason. And so one thought it was lack of purity. One thought that he would be prosperous if he was truly righteous. And one thought he didn't really know God. Some comforters. But if you read the three accounts together of these three comforters, you will find that they all bought into the prosperity gospel. The idea that if you are giving to God, walking with God, serving God, that you will always live in prosperity. And it has the theology of this, the idea that a good God and a just God will always reward the godly man here and now, here and now. And it's the idea that God owes man riches for serving him. That's the prosperity gospel. And it's not true. And Job 
in the fog of it all, was able to get some light. If you look at chapter 12 and verse 6, and he said, the tabernacles of robbers prosper. The mafia that robbed the bank, they're living on the benefits of robbery, and they're prospering. Look at the cars they're driving. Look at the houses they're living in, and they're wicked robbers. They prosper. And Job said, your thinking can't be straight. It can't be right that, that, that the godly always prosper. We see the wicked prospering in this world, and that's a problem to us. And the real question is not, why do Christians suffer setbacks? The bigger question would be, why do the wicked seem to prosper in this world? That's a harder question. And so, the prosperity gospel that these men brought is certainly not true. Now, Paul the Apostle addressed this in 1 Timothy 6 and in the verse 5. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and the verse 5. He's talking here about false teachers. He's talking about those who teach otherwise. And he says, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of truth, supposing that gain is godliness. Now, you need to mark that in your Bible because, let me tell you, this thinking is in every one of us. That if we love God, we walk with God, and we work hard for God, that everything's going to prosper. Gain. That's the, that's the thinking of the ungodly man. Supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself. We shouldn't even be in their fellowship. So what is the answer for the Christian? Verse 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain that we can carry nothing out. And I just wonder, did Paul get that thinking from Job? Job said, Naked came I into this world, and naked will we leave this world with nothing. And then in verse 9, it says, They that be, will be rich fall into temptation and a snare. And so instead of the Bible saying that God wants to make you rich and prosperous, the Bible warns us that such thinking could be a snare that the devil will bring you down. Now, let me tell you, this prosperity gospel is alive and well in the world today, and there are any number of TV evangelists, and they make this their ministry. And they are on the television, radio, and various means of media, and they're global, and they're multi-million dollar ministries, and they prosper. I better put the quotes up on that one. They prosper because of their message, God wants to make you rich. Let me quote to you what a few of these TV evangelists say. Kenneth Copeland, he says, you can call on your tithing and sowing over the years. You have a right to it. 
That's like a phone call I got from a lady one time. She had, her husband had donated to uh, our church and to the building fund. And after his passing, she phoned up and she wanted all the money back again. Thankfully, she didn't ask for interest on it. But this thinking of Kenneth Copeland was, what you give to God now is your bargaining ground. You can begin to barter with God. Joyce Meyer stated, when you give, to her ministry of course, you get a receipt in heaven so that you can go to God with your receipt and tell God that you're cashing in your receipt and God owes you. This is the prosperity gospel. Cephalo Dollar, he said, if I want to believe God for a $65 million airplane, nobody can stop me. Preachers like that are certainly not sent by God. T.D. Jakes calls God his business partner. He said he started giving to God so that God would be in debt to owe him. Now, when we come to the end of the story of Job, you'll find that Job did not call God his business partner. He fell prostrate before God and said, I am vile. He humbled himself before God. Joel Osteen's another. It's the last one I'll quote. And he has over 35 books. The first book that he wrote was Your Best Life Now. Try giving that to Job and asking him to read that one. While he's scraping his sores and living in the dust and ashes, he is childless, he is lonely, he is in pain and suffering. And someone's trying to tell him, this is your best life now? No, no, that's not the gospel message. We are a people who in the midst of our suffering in this fallen, wicked world, are waiting for the appearing and the coming of our Savior, who will give us new bodies. He will heal our bodies. He will change all our situations, and we will live for eternity in His presence to praise Him. Now, there's one more guy I need to talk about, and that's Elihu. He's not called one of Job's three friends. He is a bit more of a stranger, I think. I'm not too sure where he came from, but he was young. He's the young guy. And we discover that he's the angry guy. If you go to chapter 34, uh, you'll find some of his statements. Chapter 34, verse 17. <clears throat> well, let, let's, let's start at verse 2. Uh, we've called him the angry guy. And you'll see the word wrath coming up, verse 2. And he said, Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, of the kindred of Ram against Job, was his wrath kindled. Because, and he, why he was angry. Because Job said, I haven't sinned. 
he justified himself rather than God. Also against his three friends was his wrath. So this young guy, Elihu, he was angry at everybody. He wasn't happy with Job, and he wasn't happy with the other three friends because they weren't getting the answers. And Elihu, this young guy, he comes into the midst, and he wants to give his two cents worth. And his motive is not right. His spirit is not right. If you look at chapter 2, 32, 19, you'll see that he describes himself as a casket of wine ready to burst. Behold, my belly is as wine which hath no vent. It is ready to burst like new bottles. <laughs> what, what fit state is this man in to be an advisor to anybody? He was bursting with frustration. And yet he wanted to talk to Job to console him, supposedly. Now, what was Elihu's problem? We have said the other three friends, they all brought in, bought in one way or another to the prosperity gospel. What was Elihu's problem? Well, let's look at verse 17 in chapter 34. Shall even he that hateth right govern? And wilt thou condemn him that is most just? Elihu objected to Job's claims that Job was righteous. Because in Elihu's mind, if Job is righteous, then God is wicked. Because how can a good God and a righteous God bring calamity upon a good person? That was his problem. And if God can do that to Job, he could do it to me. And Elihu was mightily upset. And all of that for Elihu was too much. Let's go to verse 10 in chapter 34. And he said to Job, Therefore hearken unto me, ye men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should commit iniquity. For the work of a man shall he render unto him, and cause every man to find according to his ways. Yea, surely God will not do wickedly. The argument in Elihu's mind was, if Job is good, how can God be good? And that's a problem. That's a problem, especially if you don't understand the experiment that's going on. And Elihu insisted that Job was telling lies, covering up something. And it seemed so pious. It seemed so holy. It seemed that he was in the upper stratosphere of all these other advisors and of Job himself, applying this manner of thinking and his logic, according to his own mind, was either one or the other. Either Job is a sinner or God is wicked. And you know what? Job never had to answer Elihu because God stepped in. And God began to speak out of a whirlwind. And in chapter 38, verses 1 and 2, you have the Lord answering now. 
Isn't it good to be on the Lord's side? Isn't it good that whenever your enemies come against you, that the Lord answers for you? Chapter 38, verse 1, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? That's Elihu, that is. Who is this Elihu who darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? God gave the answer. Job didn't even need to defend himself. What a story. What an amazing story. A story that should be the greatest encouragement to you today. That no matter what the questions and the things that don't seem to add up in this world, God has the answer, and God will speak. Now, that brings us to a story of a man surrendering his testimony to God. Now, I had already made an an allusion to that earlier on. Am I saying that properly? He had already alluded to that earlier on. When he made that great statement, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's a powerful statement of personal faith and trust. One of our men in our Malvern Church in Pennsylvania for a number of years battled very serious cancer. In mercy, the Lord has spared him, but while he was in the hospital battling cancer, he had that text above the head of his bed, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. There's a man surrendering his testimony unto God. Now, at the end of the story of Job, chapter 42, we're coming to the last chapter now, and we see chapter 42, verses 1 to 6, and we've got to read it to get the conclusion here. And after all that his friend said, and all that Elihu said, and all that God said, chapter 42, 1, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak, and I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself, and repent in dust and ashes." The key to this, I have heard thee with the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. There was now a cloud lifted, and clarity was given to Job. And he saw God. He saw His majesty. And he fell at his feet. 
prostrate, abhorred himself. Now, all of this was after four chapters of God speaking, chapter 38, 39, 41. And in those four chapters, Dr. Henry Morris has counted that there are 77 questions. Most of them are rhetorical. The kind of question you would give to your child where you would say, am I bigger than you? There's only one answer to it. And I noted that in those questions, 16 of them begin with who. This is chapters 38, 9, 40, 41. And it does with creation. Who is the God of the lightning storm? By the way, that's what a whirlwind is. It's a lightning storm. And just like when Moses was on the top of Mount Sinai, when there were thunderings and lightnings, and God was speaking to Moses, here is God in the whirlwind, the thunderstorm, and he's speaking to Job and his friends. And the question is, who is the God of the lightning storm? Who is the God of light and darkness? Who is the God of the snow, the wind, the ice, and the hail? Who is the God of the rain? Who is the God who created the stars, Arcturus, Pleiades? Who is the God who set the arch over the horizon of the seas? And then in chapter 40, who created this land monster called Behemoth? And chapter 41, the sea monster, Leviathan. Job, what do you know about these things? Nothing. And can you not trust the God who has created all of these things to know what he's doing? That's what brought Job to surrender his testimony. And so in the troubles of this world, the question is not why. The question is who. Who is there controlling? Who is there directing all of these things? And as I said earlier, Job never did get answers to why he had to suffer so much. He never got an answer. But he discovered the majesty of God over creation and himself. What we need today is to see the majesty of God in creation, in His church, and in our own personal lives. And so the lesson of the book is to surrender to the God of majesty. And the question is not why, but who. And as Bible-believing Christians, if we do not surrender to God's majesty, we cannot find the rest, the gospel rest of Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good to them that love God. According 
to His purpose. If you don't get to where Job was brought to, Romans 8.28 will not help you. But if you surrender your testimony, put yourself on the altar with God, then you will know that all things do work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the call according to His purpose. The Christian can say this. And Job, after a long, hard battle, was brought into the enjoyment of it. Finally, this is the story of a man testifying to the mercy of God. The closing chapter reveals God's goodness to Job. In verse 10, it says, chapter 42, the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also, the Lord gave him twice as much as he had before. Now, that was a wonderful vindication for Job. But it's also a wonderful statement of God's goodness. And I hope Elihu, you're satisfied now. I hope Elihu, your problem has been settled now. You've no need to be bitter. You can let all that gas out of your wine casket. You've no need to be pent up with what God is doing. Because God is good. And God is merciful. Now, we could read all the commentators and we could get all the opinions of what this meant in the end for Job. But I'm going to lean today on the Apostle James, chapter 511, who makes a wonderful statement about the patience of Job. We're back to my original question. Who here has displayed the patience of Job? What does that mean in a Christian's life? Let's go to James 5 and verse 11. Behold, we count them happy which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job. And so we have a New Testament reference to Job, this man who went through such deep, deep trial. He became a, a renowned figure in future history. There was not a generation that would not have learned or learned about Job. And now he becomes an outstanding example for James when he's writing this epistle, and he comes up with this testimony of Job, and he says, you have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord. Now, end there means the purpose. It's the telos, the purpose of the Lord. And what do we learn about the Lord? You see, the book of Job is really about the God of Job. The story of this man's testimony is really the story of the God who made a good man better, and in doing so, displayed God's own character. What does that look like? 
It says here in verse 11 that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. After all the bitter things that were thought and said, after all the counsel of these men that came with their notions of prosperity things, and of Elihu of his purity and justice arguments, the big lesson, the big takeaway from the story of Job is that the Lord is full of great compassion. The term used here for pity is abounding in compassion and of tender mercy. And of course, Job's life was turned around. He got double everything. It's the first reference I know of of crowdfunding where his friends got together and they gave him pieces of silver and gold and he built up his resources and he became a businessman again and prospered for 140 years. And then what? He died. Every Christian faces death. Even Job had to face death, not as a part of this experiment, but because he was living in a fallen, sinful world. Death is the lot of every child of God, but he died with a testimony. He died with a testimony. And that's our goal, that we die with the statement, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And there's the prosperity. There are the riches, the eternal riches, the riches of glory, the riches of living in the presence of a gracious, good, and merciful God. And when the story is told, your testimony book will be a record of God's unending, unfailing mercies to you. Even in your darkest hour, when others might have thought God is against you, the record will show that even then, God was working for good in pity and mercy give you that glorious hope. Now, Job's way of saying that came up earlier in the book. I didn't get into it, so I'm going to close with this text. I'm going to quote a verse, and I'm stopping the preaching. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and He shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. That's all we need. I wish I could preach it, but it's over. I know, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and at the latter day on the earth shall stand. Hallelujah. What a Savior. May the Lord bless His Word. Let's turn to our hymn book in closing today.
to the hymn 55. Hymn 55. God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Number 55. eternal, gracious God, full of pity and of tender mercy, sustain us day by day in this world. Give us the patience of Job, that enduring hope in the midst of sufferings, trials, and troubles. And grant, Lord, that you'll fill everyone here today with that inner confidence. I know that my Redeemer liveth. Thank you, Lord, that you're living in glory for us, praying for us, and one day you're coming again to receive us unto yourself. Keep us, O Lord, until that day. Keep us looking unto Jesus. Bless this congregation with great grace. Make them a shining light in this city. May every brother and sister be so full of the joyous hope of the gospel 
that like the men and women in the book of Acts, could not be silent, and others took note that they had been with Jesus. Bless our dismissing. Go with us in our various ways. Bless this congregation in their evening service and your servant who will preach this evening. Oh God, we thank Thee that we are a people that worship the living and true God. And now bless us as we dismiss. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you redeemed now and evermore. Amen. Amen.